Hello, and welcome back to Consortio Day. Consortio Day is a podcast about partnering with God. It's a podcast for those who do sacred work, whether professionally or um, on a voluntary level as some sense of pursuing vocation, trying to understand what does it mean for us to cultivate healthy rhythms? What does it mean for us to care for our own souls in a way that helps us be attentive to the work that God is inviting us to, the work that God is doing around us, and whatever leadership role that we might be in, or whatever voice that we might have to help lead and guide others. So it's a process of looking at the inner journey in a way that leads to sharing with others our outer journey. My name is John Chandler, and I am currently training to be a spiritual director after 25 years in leadership in church ministry and in nonprofit settings. And so that is my heart behind this podcast, is to walk alongside others, both through these interviews and through my own future spiritual direction practices that starts to ramp up here in the next year or two. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, our first interview with Steve Carter uh, was fantastic, and it's been Great to hear some of the feedback come back from that. Thank you to those of you who shared it and who tweeted about it. And I'm excited, of course, to continue with today's interview with Wynn Collier. Wynn embodies everything I would hope a conversation on Consortio Day would be about. He was the founding pastor of All Souls in Charlottesville, and he now serves at uh, Western Theological Seminary, whereas he is helping to start the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. I love that, the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. And he was also the recent author of the biography of Eugene Peterson called A Burning in My Bones, and nobody better could have written that biography than Wynn Collier, which you'll hear all about as you hear him today and hear about his own rhythms, about his own attentiveness, his own care for his soul, and the work that he does in partnering with God. So enough said, uh, let me turn you over to the wonderful thoughts and wonderful voice of Wynn Collier. Let's do it. All right. Well, here we are, Wynn. I think Wynn, a good place I like to start, you know, I'm uh, trying to just sit with people who I think are who I consider to be respected spiritual leaders. And so here I sit with you, someone I think might be respected in wider circles, but I disrespect you personally. So that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you. But why don't we start out by you telling us about your own, your own role right now as a spiritual leader? What does that look like? Well, last August, we moved from Charlottesville, Virginia, where I was a pastor at All Souls to Holland, Michigan, where I'm uh, serving on the faculty at Western Theological Seminary and helping to um, form the new Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. The first couple weeks I was I was here, one of the students stopped me and very friendly and just asked, so what's it feel like not to be a pastor anymore? And I had to stop them and say, well, I'm, I'm still a pastor. Um, I don't, uh, so it's just important for me to say like, fundamentally, that's still how I understand myself as a pastor yeah. and a writer, but I'm just doing it in a different context. And this is not something I had imagined. We thought that we would retire from all souls. We helped to form that new church and were there 12 years, but, um, just all kinds of things that were really signals of God's invitation led us to this place. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just from one I've seen from a distance or, you know, brief conversations with you here and there, I, 
I love what you're doing there and being a part of. Can you can you describe just because it's intriguing to me a little bit about the programs that you're developing there? Sure. So there's several different layers. One is I, I do just teach um, one course a semester in the standard MDiv program in our seminary. But then we've launched two Doctor of Ministry cohorts, which are done in intensives two weeks a year. The uh, first one is called Holy Presence, Eugene Peterson and the Pastoral Imagination. So that's mm-hmm. sifting through questions of what is it what does it mean to be a faithful pastor in our time? And what are, yeah. what are the ways that um, we have abandoned the calling? Um, and then the second cohort is called the sacred art of writing. And it's, it's for writers. Um, hopefully that's obvious, but it's for people who um, feel called to, to write beautiful sentences and tell beautiful stories and, who are exploring what does it mean to um, live out that craft in a way that's holy and human. Yeah. And I love that because, because even part of my hope for this is I, I want, I want there to be an acknowledgement and I'm trying to make sense myself, even in this next question about I'm, I'm about to ask, I'm still trying to figure out the wording for it, to be honest, because you're the second interview. So, <laughs> um, well, you know, while you're, while you're thinking, I should, I should, I actually didn't finish your, your answering your question. I apologize. So that was the first layer. Then the second layer is, um, helping to form circles of friendship for pastors in various cities that's yeah. going to be called the, the Kingfisher Society. And then some other things like starting a, an annual gathering to, to name and circle around some of these hopes and, and possibilities. And then doing work um, with the intersection of, of craft and faith and theology and art and beauty, music. Yes. Um, all those kinds of circles and conversations that Eugene always found himself right in the middle of. So all that to say, those are the yes. different sort of angles that we're, that we're pursuing. Yes. And that, and that does help that, that helps frame because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to just invite conversations with people in positions. I'm calling it spiritual leadership for lack of a better term right now. I'm still trying to work out the terminology about that, but just that, people who are in some role of having a voice to share with others, whether that's a pastor or whether that's leading in a nonprofit, whether that's teaching and, you know, in an academic setting, whether that's, you know, someone who's a writer. And so it, it's, I'm, I consider spiritual leadership to be a really widely fenced pasture, so to speak. Um, you know, it's not a very defined role. And so, that's where this question comes from that I'm still trying to form the language around, but because I'm trying to ask people, what does it look like for you in the work that you do to partner with God? Maybe that's clear enough, (laughs) but, but that's the question I'd bring to you is, you know, as you've transitioned from leading a church to now the work that you are doing really ultimately helping form other voices for leadership, whether it's pastors um, who are continuing their work or writers or any of that, what does it look like for you to partner with God? How, how does the role you're in now require you to stay partnered and connected with God and the work that you're doing? 
you know, um, first of all, I love that you're you're wrangling with that word leadership and trying to expand how we hear it. And maybe maybe I hear even some wrestling with is this the is this the language I really want to to use? Because I, you know, I'm just I'm kind of leery of 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 the word, not because it's not a good word, but just because you know, most of us are trained to think of leadership somehow exalting the person or that they have some, you know, extra miraculous capacity or, um, I, I know that what I'm doing now actually feels really similar to what I was doing in Charlottesville. Yeah. (laughs) And, and the fact of the matter is it's, it's this adventure of, of listening and responding and resisting the temptation to um, anxious energy to build something and make something happen. When you, we ask the question of, you know, how is, how is partnering with God required and what I'm doing? Like it's, um, it's the absolute fundamental um, groundwork because I think there's always, whether it's in an institution, whether it's in a fledgling church, whether it's in a nonprofit, a family, a business, like there's this intense, intense pressure to um, project an image, to uh, manufacture control. Um, and I am so exhausted by that. Hmm. And I, I, I don't trust it anymore. I don't. I don't, we can make a lot of things happen. I mean, we can move a lot of rocks. Um, We can gather a crowd. We can sell some books. Um, But I think what you and I and many, many that we're following and many who are with us, uh, what we're aching for is for some kind of deep transformation that is an encounter with the holy that makes us more human yeah. more aware more aware of God, more humble, more playful, um, less um, less certain. And I don't mean less fateful. I just mean the kind of false certainty that has more to do with ego. Um, yes. and, so, and so, you know, when I'm sitting with pastors, I think my, my main hope is just to create space for us to acknowledge how dependent we are on God and how uh, how starved our soul is for um, the deep waters of the spirit, and that 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 following that path, as terrifying as it may be, actually leads us to more humanness, more joy, more possibility. And um, so that's kind of a circuitous way to say, uh, I, I hope that, everything we do at the Peterson center would fall to the ground if it's not, um, dependent and responsive to whatever God is up to. Yeah. See it. Thank you. Cause it sounds like a simple, straightforward question, but it's really often in the work that a lot of us do that. I don't know that we've even taken the time to think through, well, of course I have to partner with God for the work that I do, but to really, consider and weigh what does that mean and what does that look like? It's actually a pretty important question to wrestle with, I think. And, and yeah, you're right about the, you're right about the leadership 
I, I one, I, you know, it's like who, who, how can I have conversations with people who want to put themselves in a place where they can help guide others spiritually, shepherd others spiritually? But the term pastor seems like it's defined just to church settings, and I want to talk wider than that. I thought about spiritual influencers, but influences be, influencers has become such a troubling word to me because now that's more of like a celebrity, you know, or social media culture that doesn't make sense. So I could say spiritual guides, but that just seems, but yeah, so there's a wrestling there, but at the same time, I think what you just brought home is really important is that there is, there is a work of self to be done that leads to a posture of humility, a posture of love that then hopefully can inform and be passed along to others who are hungering and desiring that same kind of thing, you know, and so much of the work that I did in my early days as a pastor, I was in relatively healthy scenarios, I think, but my own soul wasn't formed that much. My, my practical skills were. And so what does it look like for us to be able to form our own souls or partner with others who can help us in forming our souls so that we are available for the work that God is trying to do through us and with us really. Yeah. And I, I, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, why is this so difficult? And I, because I think again, if, if we had, you know, pick, pick any circle of Christian leaders of any sort, we'd all be nodding our head. Of course, respond, you know, cooperate with God, you know, we've, this is the language, but why is it that it feels like it's sometimes the furthest thing from our mind, um, using God language, but God has very little to actually do with it. It seems like sometimes, and I think that, um, too many of us too often, uh, we have our assumptions and preconceived ideas about what God is doing. And so when we say cooperating with God, what we really mean is God's cooperating with us. Right. God is, you know, we assume the church is supposed to grow. We assume um, that we should feel um, uh, victorious. And we assume that our plans um, and visions are God's. And I'm just, I'm suspect of all of that. I, I think we tack God's name onto all kinds of things. And I was just speaking with someone earlier this morning who was, telling me a story about um, a Renovari conference, which I actually w was there, but I don't remember this moment. And there was a Q&A with Dallas Willard and Eugene Peterson and Richard Foster. And one of the questions was, what do you think the primary metaphor is in scripture for the Christian life? And the three of them kind of huddled together <laughs> 30 seconds, which I love that. And and agreed on, you know, sort of three words back and forth and agreed on one word. And Eugene was the one who actually spoke it. And he, they broke up the huddle and Eugene said, wilderness. Hmm. Um, that strikes me as a, true. And I don't know that I've ever heard that. <laughs> no, um, um, no. I mean, wilderness is part of the journey, but you just get out of it. Like, Exactly. Um, yeah. But if you think about the story of Israel, I mean, wilderness was was uh, almost predominant, you know. And if you think about 
um, uh, the epistles and the story of Jesus' life and their wanderings. And yeah, um, it's kind of the ordinary world, right? Um, but we don't like that because we assume it's, you know, metaphors of resurrection or metaphors of conquering or meta, you know, and resurrection is absolutely uh, the, the undergirding energy and heart, but that's not our experience all the time. Um, so all that just to say, I, I wonder how it would change even our conversations around Christian leadership if there was a little bit more humility of um, what does it mean that much of our experience is going to be wilderness? Yeah. Yeah, and you even named Israel being in the wilderness. It shouldn't be lost on any of us that these set-apart people uh, were literally named wrestlers or strugglers. You know, that's, that's, right. that's what Israel means. So, Well, then talk about a little bit, what, what do your own rhythms look like for your, for your cultivation of that partnership, that cooperation with God? Because the reason I the reason I would invite someone like you to have this conversation is I've just always sensed a humility, humility in you um, alongside a deep competence at the same time. And so I feel like that humility is hard fought rather, whether maybe you acknowledge that or not. Um, I don't know, but I'm just curious, like what, what is the work that you have done and continue to do with your own rhythms to cultivate that, ongoing humility. Well, I think, I mean, part of it is, is, um, you know, I guess to continue the dour metaphors of wilderness and <laughs> it's what you do with pain and suffering. Hmm. Um, do we, do we allow these, um, these places of turmoil in the heart and soul to to turn us more deeply in toward God. Um, do we do we seek a quiet heart that? Um, you know, there's one of the prayers in the Book of Common Prayer in the morning prayers. Um, it's 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 one of the from the Psalms actually. It's like it's a common refrain, but it's it's this. Um, God in whom we have our being, which is obviously a reflection also in Colossians, but it's, it's, um, God who gives us breath. Um, like, what does it mean to, um, sink more deeply into the truth that my very breath, my very existence in this world, um, that, that the God is that near to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more and more uncomfortable with language about, you know, God being far, you know, uh, us being away from God or have to come back to God. Um, mm. I think it's, it's, um, God's as close as my breath. Um, the Psalms tell, tell me that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. God is literally holding me up as I stand on this soil. Um, so, it's a far deeper question of like what it, but so the question is what how am i how am i aware how am i listening um i mean i have to walk a lot i i need to run or walk 
something about the, the cadence um, huh. and how that stills my heart, my mind. Um, sometimes some of my, my better prayers happen in those spaces. Um, I try to join uh, sisters and brothers around the world in in morning prayers, um, not not uh, fastidiously necessarily, but with with a kind of regularity that that gives it heft in my heart. I I read beautiful stories. Um, to to me, those are definitely windows of grace. Um, yeah. For me, writing is often an act of prayer. Um, it feels that there is a an awareness of God, a dependence, a, a, a yieldedness that has to happen um, in my writing. Um, definitely, uh, and I need to I need to do much better at this. But um, turning off the phone and the computer, um, it's almost cliche to say, but I mean those are beasts. They that, are beasts. That just gobble up our uh, imagination, our attention, our um, yeah. So I don't think, honestly, I don't think any of it's um, unique or that I'm particularly good at it. Um, it's it's more like just following the scent, um, like that dog that's just wandering and sniffing the air, and um, I just try to keep keep coming back home, keep. Uh, returning and, and frankly the last two weeks particularly I felt very unsettled I felt hmm. um, I felt uncentered um, I've had um, felt more anxious woke up this morning with a uh, told Miska and I was leaving like I just woke up with a lot of anxiety this morning hmm. and, and so those are signals to me that I need to really pay attention um, I don't want to. I don't want to rush past that, um, and so I need. I need to walk. I need to to sit in silence. I need to practice joy. Um, I need to move out of my mind and into my body, um, and uh, so those those are some of the rhythms. Is it? I mean, that's a really insightful thing to be able to do to wake up this morning and say, "I feel really anxious." Is that? Is that, is that a learned practice for you to even be aware of that? Or has that always come naturally for you? Um, uh, I, I don't know that I would say naturally, but I, I don't also don't know that I did a great job learning it. I think it's, again, probably a, more a reflection of, of pain. <laughs> like yeah. when, when, you, when you've suffered and um, th those things are acute. And so you start to, I mean, I guess we have a choice. We could ignore them or we can walk into them. And, um, I prefer to walk into them cause I, I want, I want to be whole. I don't, I don't want to be, um, fragmented and I don't want to be an anxious person. I, I want, I want to live with joy. I want to reflect the, um, the beauty and wonder of, of, um, resurrection into in my life and i want to be a pastor who um is a balm not uh, a source of uh, of wounding for others and so i think yeah. i think that um dealing with my own anxieties are required for those things that i desire yeah and and being aware that they're present so that you can 
so that you can take them head on rather than help have them be some kind of force that is driving you from behind that you don't even recognize, you know, because if we can't, if we can't acknowledge that anxiety or know that it's present, it's going to lead us to interact with others and do things out of that anxiety without even recognize how it's shaping us. And then we're partnering with anxiety rather than partnering with God. Oh man, that's so true. And we have, I mean, I think we're reaping the whirlwind now. I mean, we have, you know, read the headlines, uh, listen to the podcast, read the books, you know, we listen to the stories of people, um, on the very back pew, barely hanging on, you know, we, we have, we have so many, um, painful places of, of pastors and, and, and so-called Christian leaders who have built their life around anxieties of different sorts. And, um, and it's, it's really done so much destruction. Can I go back and ask about walking? Because that was the first thing you said. Um, yeah. Or running, but I don't want to talk about running. I'd rather talk about walking personally. <laughs> um, what is that something you've always done? Is that something you learned along the way? This is uh, besides physically healthy, right? Is that something that you learned along the way that is just, this is a really healthy practice for me? And, and what did, how did you discover that? Or what, it, what is it about walking that you think is, or running? I'll let you talk about running too, <laughs> that yeah. you think is so valuable for you. I don't remember when exactly I learned it. I, me- I remember in high school discovering, so I played football and, you know, in summers particularly wanted to stay in shape for the fall season and, and always was struggling with my weight. And I learned that like running was the only form of exercise that I really enjoyed. Like I hated lifting weights. I hated being in a gym. I liked being outside. I liked the rhythm of it. Um, so from that angle, it, it was from high school on just kind of a sense of discovery. But later, the, the walking, I mean, I've always loved, um, thought that I always loved backpacking. Um, and I learned, you know what? I don't love backpacking. Mm-hmm. I love, I love the hiking to get to beautiful places. Yeah. Um, and frankly, I don't, I mean, I'm a little ashamed to admit this because I, I do the stuff and I have the gear and I still buy the gear. You know, I actually, if I'm honest, don't even love like camping out. I don't love sleeping in a tent. Right. But I like, I like being in that space and I like moving under my own um, strength to get to that space. Miska and I, my wife, Miska, she, we just, we figured out um, six or seven years ago the wonderful allure of walking tours. Hmm. And we did our first one on, on, on sabbatical. We took our sons and we did a walking tour in Scotland and we would go from one village to the next village, 12, you know, 12 miles a day. And you were just moving under the power as fast as and slow as you wanted to go under the power of your own feet. And you see a place differently like that, you know, that way. Yeah. And we did another one in Ireland and playing another one still, um, for my son's graduation and, um, and walking has become a regular part of my life, regular part of Miska's life. And, um, I'm even hoping 
out of the Peterson Center one of these days to organize a, a pilgrimage, like a walking tour for pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that I can explain it much more than, um, was it Augustine or St. Francis? We actually have the little plaque at our house, and I'm sad to say I can't remember which one of them <laughs> said it, but but, but basically said, um, uh, the trouble is solved by walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that seems true to me. If there's something that I think is pushes against the speed of our life, um, the efficiency that we are taught we're supposed to live by. There's nothing more inefficient than walking. Um, And I think it's um, a very human and holy act. I I feel like, you you know, you talked earlier about the requirement, not the requirement, if I can recapture the language, but, but you talked earlier about how God is always present and always around us rather than us feeling like we have to call on God or ask God to show up or something like that. And I feel like that's one of the things maybe that walking because of the literal pace of it just tunes our soul to be more attentive. You know, you can notice things when you're walking that you'll never notice when you're driving and um, maybe running. I don't know. I've only run a few times in my life, so I can't speak to that. Um, But yeah, and so it almost feels like so much of it is even just it hones and tunes your attentiveness that you you can pay attention better both to your surroundings and you can also pay attention better to what's even going on in yourself when you choose a more deliberate uh, pace like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think you, I think you're nailed, you nailed it. Um, you mentioned a. And this is a question I wanted to ask you that's out of the norm for my questions, um, but something I thought of with you. You mentioned a plaque in your home, and I'm sitting here, like, admiring what's happening behind you right now. You've got the comfy chair with a blanket tossed over it and artwork on the walls and many books and a Clemson football helmet um, on the bookshelves. There's, It feels like – and, and – I all this goes back to even what I've seen for you in the past. And I would, I would comment. I don't feel like I've seen this as much in Michigan as I used to see in Charlottesville. Um, but a cultivation of the spaces where you spend a lot of time and maybe your wife has something to do with that too. I don't know. Um, but it feels like there's a lot of intent on your part. You even named your house. If I recall in Charlottesville. So it seems like there's a deep intention to, give a lot of thoughtfulness even to the spaces where you spend time. Is that true? And can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we poured a lot of love into Long Dream Cottage. There you go. It was a 1936 um, cottage that was built on a couple acres. And, and we, and we put love, sweat and tears to revive that place. <clears throat> and, um, I think it just goes to the particularities of um, that grace is present in the physical, um, ordinary uh, realities of our life. So, you know, we want our home to be a place of beauty and hospitality and warmth and welcome for our for ourselves, for our family, for those who come. Um, and join us 
in our home. And I just, um, I think that that beauty and space, um, again, it's another one of those ways that we resist the idolatry to believe that efficiency and pragmatism rule everything. I think we have sort of petered out at the end of that project that um, what matters is just the function of something. Um, inherently, we all know that's not true. You know, um, you can't read a good novel if all they're trying to do is do the functional pieces of a story. Um, yeah. It's it's the detail. It's the it's the evocativeness. It's the beauty. It's the the ambiguity, um, the the uniqueness that brings a true story to life, and that's what brings a home to life or um, a marriage or. Um, so you know, at least in certain circles of the church, for a long time, um, we were taught that architecture didn't matter. Um, that our only question was, you know, um, how to build a space that functions the way it needs to function, and then maybe one that um, is responding to the cultural moment, so that that people who aren't Christians would find themselves feeling welcomed in that space. Um, with no thought to the long story of the church, with no thought to any kind of theology of space or architecture or beauty, with no thought to um, what is the story that this space is telling, and do we want to tell a different story other than um, what corporate America is telling? Um, and so all that plays into our home, too. Um, we want to have smells and sights and sounds and um, books and paintings that um, tell stories and uh, evoke grace in ways that you don't require language to make it happen. It just, it's just something that you encounter. Yeah. It just seems like that there's this theme with you of you cultivate your inner soul by helping place yourself in an, in peaceful or beautiful environments, whether it's hiking, walking, you know, the, the spaces you, you dwell in. Um, I, I, I just remember when you first started posting pictures of, what did you call it? What was the name of the long dream cottage? Yeah. I wanted to say long bottom cottage, but I knew it wasn't. <laughs> I think that's Harry Potter, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. I thought, man, he's, He's because I knew you lived in Charlottesville, which is you know not tiny town. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, he's on vacation again at some Airbnb. And then I finally realized, no, he keeps posting pictures of the same place with the same name. <laughs> says, this isn't yeah. just some Airbnb he keeps escaping to. So I appreciated yeah. that. Yeah. Um. Did I didn't ask you because I know we've already gone an hour. Do you have a hard stop? I won't. I don't want to go much longer, but I figured I better make sure. Yeah, I mean, a few more minutes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and hopefully I'll remember to cut that out, but I might not, and that's okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you just wrote, and we intentionally said this podcast, or I told you this podcast wasn't just going to be talking about your um, book, because you've done the podcast book tour, but you just wrote the bio for Eugene Peterson, which was great, and I loved it, and I know you've gotten a lot of fine praise for that. 
but you know what I actually want to mention is I, I loved your book, Love Big Be Well, and which I, I, I loved your Eugene Peterson bio as well, burning in my bones. <laughs> um, but I imagine that Love Big Be Well did not get the same amount of sales and the same amount of notoriety that uh, your Eugene Peterson book did. And I'm just, uh, I'm just curious if you could talk about that book a little bit, like where it maybe describe what it's about and then talk about where it came from. Cause I think it's when I think that that book was a gift to me and I think it could be a gift to many. Hmm. Well, thank you for like remembering that. I, I love that book. Um, so it's, it's fiction, but it's, it's, you know, formally would be called an epistolary novel, which just means it's a story told through letters. Um, and it's, it follows seven years of life of a pastor who had a tough background and was burnt out and selling insurance and connects with this little Presbyterian parish. And they ask him to come be their pastor. And all of this, these relationships start through letters and he determines when he arrives that he's going to continue that practice. And so a couple times a year, he just writes the whole church a letter and so it follows and follows several characters and, and, um, but I, yeah, I think it, it, um, it grew out of some of my own, you know, relationships and story. And there was a friend who wrote me one day and said, you know, our, our church pastor has left and I'm on the search committee for a new pastor. And what would you how would you encourage us or what, you know, what should we be looking for? And, um, I could hear the exhaustion in her voice. Mm, yeah. Um, even though I was reading it, but I could, I could, I could like hear that, that, um, her pouring out this. And I, and I knew what this felt like, you know, the exhaustion I felt on the other end as a, someone who had been through the search process before with churches and kind of can be a dehumanizing experience in some ways sometimes, but, and I found uh, this story just starting to pour out as my response. And um, so, yeah, I, I love that book. And I have thought at some point I might return to those characters. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think I read that book maybe six months or nine months before essentially I left ministry and not really left ministry, but left the church that we were leading at that time, um, which still just kind of makes me a little sad. I wish I would have read that book sooner because I felt like that book even helped tune and kind of restore my own intention for what it, what I wanted it, how I wanted to pastor, what I wanted it to look like for me as a pastor. So I wanted to name it because I hope maybe others will, be able to find it and because I think it I really do I think it was a gift well I know it was a gift to me and I think it could be a gift to others so thanks for writing that um, so one last question that I'll ask is this uh, I, I mean one of the questions that I try to ask is what do you understand now that you wish you understood when you were starting out but I'm going to tweak it for you and ask when someone goes through the programs that you're doing through the Peterson Center, whether it's the two demons you talked about or 
you know, some of the, the, the Kingfisher uh, stuff. What, what is your hope that someone will take away from that? You know, is there a common theme or a common practice or something that out of any of those you hope someone will take away that will make them a better pastor, a better influencer, <laughs> no, a better pastor or a better leader in whatever setting they're in? I think I just hope that they will feel the freedom to be more truly who God's made them to be. I think a lot of us as pastors live under immense anxiety again about these this image we think we're supposed to uphold or these roles we think we're supposed to play out. And unfortunately, God is just um, completely missed in that whole project. Yeah. And so I hope that there will be this growing resilience of a faithful and humble posture in the world that it has a kind of belligerence um, against the dehumanizing, um, desacralizing ways that we are taught often to lead as pastors and that we'll become more playful and hopeful and um, that there will be pastors who see their work more as poetry and art than science or um, corporation. Um, and, and that that's going to look different for different kinds of pastors and different churches. And there's no, there's no template, but that there is this deep unrest that what God is doing is far deeper, broader, probably slower, um, and will carry us into the wilderness, um, than the ways that we've, that we've been taught to believe. So that's not a very tidy answer to your question. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Yeah. Sorry, I jumped in on you there. I'm like, I, I wasn't looking for a tidy mm-hmm. answer, so. Right. Yeah, but that's that's um, those are the words that come to mind right now. Yeah. Well, when I, I I appreciate you, I appreciate even just hearing these thoughts. I'll, I'll tell you that, and we talked about this before we started recording, but my daughter is a sophomore in college now. And when she was exploring going to college, you know, one of the, one of the, I think 200 different schools that she expressed interest in, but maybe one of the 50 she expressed a little more interest in was UVA. Hmm. And I said, I absolutely think you should go there because I know what church you could go to. <laughs> and I was like, I felt a little extra desire for her to go to UVA so that she could come be a part of All Souls. Wow. And I thought, well, maybe we should just all move to Charlottesville because if I would move across the country to be a part of a church, that would be certainly one I would love to consider. Um, all that to say, I've just appreciated and respected you for a long time from a distance. And while you're not pastoring All Souls anymore, um, and I can't send her there just to vicariously live that out on my behalf. Um, I'm also really excited because I hope and pray that the work that you're doing now, even in a little podcast like this, but more importantly, the work that you're doing now in Michigan just leads to a lot more pastors who are leading a lot more churches like All Souls. And I hope that, uh, I don't know, I, I think there's something that you as a person and a pastor 
um, have tried to do and something about the way that you formed all souls that just needs to be something that we return to in the church. And I'm thankful for that. And so I, I have many prayers and hopes for the work that you're doing now. Well, John, thank you. That means a lot.